So, Jay, what is Psycho Man's deal? Well, Miles, he is a very small man with very big feelings. That sounds awfully subtle for a supervillain. I mean, he's got a robot suit and a fancy Kirby machine that makes people hate each other. Acceptable, I guess. Hell, he was the one who turned the Invisible Woman into Malice that one time. Malice? You mean that choker with the skull on it that possesses people? The one Polaris got stuck in. Uh, different Malice. And Sue wasn't possessed, anyway. Just brainwashed by Hatemonger. Wait, Psycho Man was working with Hitler? Different Hatemonger. This one was a robot who could turn into a perfect duplicate of Reed Richards. And that was enough to brainwash Sue into becoming a supervillain. He also had some pamphlets. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 430 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to a late 90s episode about some really good comics. I gotta say, late 90s, I talked a lot of shit about you, and certainly some aspects of you are not great. But there is some amazing work in this era. The thing about the late 90s is that there's so much that your odds of getting something brilliant drop. Like, there are as many really good comics, but there are so many total. And so many of those are just kind of there. That, like, if you reach into the mix and you're, you're drawing a random issue or a random series... I think it's less likely to grab you than if you do that a decade prior. You know, that is a good point. Back in the 80s, there were very few X-Books, and overall, they were very consistently good. In the 90s, there's there's a lot. And there are a lot of miniseries, and there are a lot of annuals, and a lot of issues of X-Men Unlimited, and a lot of crossovers, and a lot, a lot, a lot. Right. The barrel is larger, but more stuff, you know, weighs to the bottom. Mm. Well, I'm pleased to report that today we're going to talk about issues we really liked. And now that two of the team books we were covering have ended, that means we're cycling through faster, and that means we are back once again to X-Men stuff. That's right. We are going to be looking at three X-Men issues today, one uncanny, one adjectiveless, and one annual, which is a crossover annual and is, is really good. It is. But of course, we would be remiss if we did not offer some background to this particular micro-era of our ex-friends. So let's see what happened previously on X-Men. Now that Operation Zero Tolerance has been over for a while, and Steve Siegel and Joe Kelly have been writing for a while, the X-Men are mostly settled into their new status quo. Most of them are back at the X-Mansion, which they've largely refurnished after it got gutted by the Operation Zero Tolerance baddies. Wallpapering it with what may or may not be wrapping paper. They're also getting used to their new members. Grumpy former emergency room doctor and reluctant force field wielding mutant, Cecilia Reyes. South African showboat with an external digestive system consisting of two semi-sentient slug bugs, Maggot. And slightly homicidal former or current, if depending on whether you count by allegiance or location, uh, Morlock, who grows extra bones and grew up in an alternate timeline and before that a sewer, Marrow. 
Their longer-term members consist of Team Stalwart's Beast, Storm, Wolverine, and Rogue, plus former New Mutant and X-Force member Cannonball. Notably absent are founding team members Cyclops and Phoenix, who are both recovering in Alaska. Uh, Cyclops from a severe injury sustained during OZT, and Phoenix from losing her telepathy along with all the other telepaths in the world during the recent Cywar event. One person who's not so settled in is Rogue, who's become increasingly desperate for human touch since her extremely dramatic breakup with Gambit and the associated extra brains in her brain. Uh, she kind of left him to die in Antarctica, and it was a whole thing. Storm and Marrow also aren't doing so hot with one another, what with Marrow having goaded Storm into ripping out Marrow's heart to save a bunch of humans a while back. It's fine, though. She had another. Seriously, Marrow having a backup heart and that being why that didn't kill her is one of my favorite single plot points in all of X-Men ever. It's such a fuck you of a retcon. I love it. Right, it's where the writer's just like, you know what, I, I don't even care. I'm just bringing the character back. Fuck all y'all. Which kind of makes sense, because I know Scott Laudel was really mad about being forced to write that story where Storm de-heartified Marrow. Yeah, and then she just, she had another one. Like a Time Lord. Anyway, that brings us to Uncanny X-Men number 359, Power Play. Written by Joe Kelly and Steve Siegel. Penciled by Chris Pacello and Ryan Benjamin, inked by Tim Townsend, Scott Hanna, and John Holdridge, colored by Shannon Blanchard, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. So, yeah, this is a collaboration writing-wise between Joe Kelly and Steve Siegel. I don't know if one of them wrote certain plot lines, the other wrote the other. I couldn't really tell, which I guess means they did it pretty transparently. Yeah, it's pretty seamless. The art less so. Oh, jeez, yeah. So, we all know and love Chris Pacello's art. Well, not all of us love it. We love it, Jay and I. Uh, it is very exaggerated. It's very, like, stylistically distinctive. And the other artist, the other penciler, Ryan Benjamin, his art is is perfectly good comic book art, but it looks way more normal. And it wouldn't be so bad if, say, one artist did the A plot and one did the B plot— but that's not how it goes. Like, they just switch off randomly from page to page. So it's uh, quite jarring. It is. It's not a good pairing. Um, honestly, there are very few artists who I feel like pair that smoothly with Pacello. Maybe Mark Buckingham? Uh, or maybe Humberto Ramos. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. Anyway, let's start with Rogue, one of my favorite characters to see Pacello draw. She is repeatedly having these dreams of touch, specifically, like, sexy, but comics code compatible, so not too sexy, touch, with Gambit. But she always wakes up before it gets good. Man, been there, girl. Aw, poor Rogue. And in this dream, they're being all sexy on each other on, like, a royal throne? Like, does that look like a king's throne that they're making out on to you also? It does a bit, yeah. And I guess that's kind of thematically relevant, because Shirtless Gambit has a tattoo on one of his pecs of a hand of playing cards, which, as we know, use, like, kings and queens and stuff. Uh, interestingly, the tattoo he has is specifically five cards, one of which is blocked by Rogue's hand, and the other two of which are a pair of aces and a pair of eights. That is the dead man's hand, which is what the famous gunfighter and lawman cowboy Wild Bill Hickok was supposedly holding when he was shot dead. Uh, technically, the cards should all be clubs and spades, all black cards, and they're not here, they're one of each suit. But uh, still, it's a fun little touch. I don't know what it means, but it's a fun little touch. Did, did you know that? Did you just know that? I did, but uh, mainly because of a Motorhead song. Okay. 
Well, anyway, also during this sexy motorhead dream, there are silhouettes of birds everywhere and like silhouettes of feathers everywhere because it's this run and there's so much bird symbolism leading up to the big phoenix reveal that never actually happens. Man, having a sex dream that was also full of birds would be really unsettling. They're just they're squawking and watching you. And crapping everywhere. That's not sexy. No, no. Birds are not sexy. Anyway, Rogue, it turns out, has fallen asleep, uh, not on a throne or in her bed. You know what the least sexy bird is? Uh, n- no. What, what's the least sexy bird, Jay? The duck. I mean, duck cocks are horrifying. Yeah. Ducks have the worst sex of all the of all birds. Sorry, ducks. Sorry that you're ducks. Anyway, uh, let's not talk about duck cocks. Let's talk about that thing I was starting to talk about when you brought up duck cocks, which is um, Rogue, who fell asleep in a waiting room, as many of us have probably done. She has gone back to see Dr. Aubrey Aggie. That is the guy who said he has a machine that can remove her mutant powers. And given how desperate she's been for touch, especially lately, especially since she had sex with Gambit for the first time— and since she's been, like, increasingly drawn to rationalize touching various people, even though she knows how dangerous it is, she wants to be able to do so without worrying she's gonna, you know, kill them. That's a reasonable thing to want, I think. It is. I, one of the reasons—so Rogue tends to be the focus of characters being ambivalent about their powers stories. And I think she's a very good focus for them, because she's on one hand very powerful, and on the other hand she has a power that has really, really profound— and obvious drawbacks. Very much so, yeah. And it's one of those things where I think at first glance you're like, oh, whatever, you just wear gloves or whatever, but not being able to have skin-to-skin contact, like, ever? That that sounds pretty rough. That sounds extremely rough. And especially her powers manifested, remember, with her first kiss. Like, she's never been able to have that except this once with Gambit in, in Antarctica when their powers weren't working. And she enjoyed that oxytocin and wants more. Yep. Although I guess there was that one time she was in the Savage Land and Magneto was able to hold back her powers. Uh, not exactly sure what did or didn't happen there. The comics code definitely didn't let us see the details. It was ambiguous. It was. It was. They did some ambiguity. Mmm. Ambiguity. Yeah. So, Aggie's about to start this whole procedure, and she tells him, you know, it's like she has a seventh sense that's warning her about this. Which makes sense, because remember, she permanently absorbed Carol Danvers' powers way back in the day, and that is one of Carol Danvers' lesser-known powers, the seventh sense that warns her of danger, so basically Spidey sense. And we, too, get some signs that things might not be entirely on the up-and-up. Like, for instance, the fact that there's a one-way mirror with a room full of people observing this procedure without Rogue's knowledge. Among those people are Henry Peter fucking Gyrick, the Walter Peck of the Marvel Universe, a.k.a. the government guy that hates mutants and is a big jerk. We've got Senator Ralph, or possibly Miles, Brickman, and his wife Mallory, whom, of course, X-Factor readers will recognize as Mystique. Okay, I love this shit. Like, X-Factor is over, X-Factor has ended, it exploded abruptly— But it's really nice to see that even though, say, the XUE will never be mentioned again, we're still getting plot points from it showing up elsewhere. It makes things feel more cohesive, and it also kind of makes it feel like X-Factor toward its end wasn't just a waste. Like, it still contributed, you know? And having Mystique here is such a brilliant touch, specifically having Mystique here and not know in advance that it's going to be Rogue. 
Yeah, yeah, very much so. She's just figuring like, oh, this is anti-mutant stuff. I should check this out. I should try to influence it. And she plays it cool. She's very good at, you know, impersonating people because that's kind of her entire deal. But the art really does convey just her shock when she realizes, shit, that's my foster daughter in there. And she she makes an excuse to leave the room, presumably heads out to freshen up as she does every two or three panels in her first appearance um, as, as Mallory Brickman. So much freshening up in the political world. And then comes back as Dr. Aggie's nurse, um, but with a large gun. And she just starts spraying bullets everywhere. She's trying to kill Dr. Aggie, which is a very mystique thing to do. She does really like assassinating people. Well, and she knows Rogue is bulletproof. And in fact, Rogue uses that power to protect Dr. Aggie. She jumps in front of him and gets hit with all the bullets, which of course shreds most of her hospital gown. So, you know, take a drink from a saline bag. Rogue and Mystique head out to the roof for a serious conversation. Rogue tries to explain where she's coming from, but Mystique has, like, no sympathy for her foster daughter. Would you betray your race for something as fleeting, as ultimately meaningless as love? Whether it be from a man or a child? You disgust me. I love this. I mean, we could totally call Mystique a hypocrite, and in some ways she is, because she in her history has pretty much burned down the world twice for the sake of her wife, Destiny. But she hasn't betrayed mutants, per se, as wholly as she sees Rogue doing now, and she hasn't betrayed or changed her own mutant identity. And also, at this point in her life, she is just— she's doing everything she can to convince herself she doesn't have feelings, that all that matters is the cause— because we know how much Raven loves Irene, how much Raven loved and still loves Irene. She doesn't want to let herself have feelings because it's just too painful. She would fall right back into that despair and that anguish that she felt when Destiny died. And Mystique continues, just cutting to the bone. If someone had invented a ray in the midst of the civil rights movement to turn black skin white, would you have championed its use as well? It's not the same thing. It is exactly the same thing. So, I don't know, what do we think about this? Like, the scientist has a method of removing mutant powers, rogue monster mutant powers removed. Is this the betrayal that Mystique says it is? Is this something rogue has the right to do? I don't know. It's it's an imperfect metaphor, but in pulling it out as a quote, I think you've stripped it of its context, which is that Rogue says to Mystique, you know, there's so much discrimination, maybe this isn't a bad thing because it'll make us all the same. Which is what Mystique is responding to with with her her allegory. That's true. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, Rogue is totally rationalizing all this, and she's been doing a lot of that lately. Like, she saw Joseph unconscious and rationalized to herself that, well, she should probably give him CPR, even knowing that that was not a great idea. And Rogue gets fed up and says, you know, finally, you know what, fine, I don't know when you're telling the truth to me, I don't know when you're lying, I'm just gonna go straight to the source and touches Mystique. And pulls all of her knowledge into her mind, and also her powers, and also her personality. So Mallory Brickman heads back to the lab and starts causing havoc, because yeah, this is Rogue using Mystique's powers to shapeshift into the senator's wife. But it's Rogue having absorbed enough of Mystique's personality... To not quite be acting of her own volition anymore. 
Yeah, she's having conversations with the mystique part of her personality, like there are two minds in her head. There basically are at this point. Actual mystique comes in to assist. She's a, a quick recoverer. But it's really Rogue that decides what to do. She looms over the cowering Dr. Aggie. And she tells him, I want you to take away my powers. I want you to, but I can't let you do it. Not so long as I'd have to live every normal day of my life knowing this machine might be out there changing others' lives against their will. And we both know that's what it had come to. I'm glad you finally see things my way. It ain't your way. It's mine. I had actually misremembered this story. I'd remembered uh, Mystique actually killing Dr. Aggie. I love that she doesn't. I love that it's Rogue who makes the call. Like, yeah, Mystique's been arguing with her, been yelling at her about why she shouldn't do it. But Rogue still gets the choice. And I think that's the most important thing. Absolutely. Well, that's not the only thing going on in this issue. Let's check in with Anchorage, Alaska and see how Scott and Jean are doing. Well, Alaska is where you bring your feelings, so they're they're having some stuff out. Um, Jean is having a rough time because she has lost her telepathy in Cywar, and it's like one of her senses are gone, and she and Scott also no longer have their telepathic link. Scott tries to comfort her, but as the narration tells us, His words have always been enough for her before, but today is the first time she's had to hear them only with her ears. That's not true. Right, because in the Silver Age, she didn't have access to her telepathy. And she didn't have access to her telepathy for the first long time in in X-Factor. True as well. True as well. And, you know, I'm not going to get on the writer's case for, for missing that, but that is a good point. That said, she has had that psychic link with Scott. They've been able to feel each other's thoughts and feelings in their own minds for a long, long time at this point. Since Inferno, yeah? I believe so, yeah. So, you know, it may not be exactly true, but losing something like that after that long, just having things be so quiet, not having this constant, not just belief, but knowledge that a person loves you that much and can be trusted that much, like, God, that would be devastating to say nothing of the fact that she's not able to interact with the world the way she has for years at this point. She's gonna have to rely on Scott Summers to honestly communicate his feelings, and that's never good. Yeah, yeah, she knows who she married. Still, though, she's this wonderful late 90s version of Jean, and so later on she comes into a room where Scott's brooding with an, I heard that, which she's just fucking with him, it's great. Yeah, she hates that they have to stay there instead of going back to find a new dream for the X-Men with Xavier gone, but he says, you know, there's there's no question, you need this, I love you, this is where, if, if this is where you belong, this is where I belong. I always knew that before, but now that I don't, say it. Say it often. I love this couple. I love this couple, written by these writers in particular. But enough of the romance. Time for hijinks, because we are on to the Uncanny X-Men and Fantastic Four Annual 1998 Thresholds. Written by Joe Casey, penciled by Paul Pelletier and Leo Fernandez, inked by Andrew Popoy, Keith Champagne, Rob Lee, and Ray McCarthy, and colored by Felix Serrano, Umberto Ramos, Chris Sotomayor, J.D. Smith, and Greg Schiegel, and of course lettered by Richard Starkings and Gobblecraft. Oof. One person we don't have here is Chris Claremont, and we haven't had him in a while. However, he was actually writing a 29-issue run of Fantastic Four at the time. See, the original plan, after Fabian Nessieza left, was for 
Chris Claremont to write one of the X-Men books while Scott Lobdell wrote the other. But Lobdell, as we've talked about before, unexpectedly quit when he got too fed up with Marvel editorial. And at that point, Claremont was still embroiled in an action figure royalties thing with Marvel and Toy Biz. So without any X writers, Marvel hired Siegel and Kelly. And since the X-Men books were now occupied when Chris Claremont was available, he just took over Fantastic Four instead. And I'm actually really curious about that run. Apparently he brings a lot of X stuff into his FF run, and I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but I kind of want to find out. Yeah, I have no idea where this annual sits relative to the Fantastic Four status quo at the time. Um, I have a better sense of where it fits, you know, in the X-Men status quo, obviously, because Sam Guthrie Cannonball is still with the X-Men and not yet back with X-Force. Exactly, yeah. But we start with a character who has appeared in neither, and that is Stark Fujikawa scientist Bradley Bainan. He is disgruntled as hell. He's got a little robot friend named Hadley, and the two of them are toiling over not exactly Bannon's life work, the work, his work of the last few months, which he makes sound like it might as well be his life's work. I, I really love how in the Marvel Universe, everybody has little robot pals, and that's just sort of a normal thing. Like, it's freaking questionable content in here. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Although, I, I was going to say none of those robots have, have, like, questionable content quality butts, but actually, I'm entirely forgetting the whole, like, Vision family, so. Mm, Jocasta. And how. Um, so anyway, um, Bradley Bannon's big project is a miniaturizer. It's very large. It's very cumbersome. He's been working on it and working on it. He, he thinks, you know, he's going to show them all. Obviously, he's about to become a supervillain. Um, and Bannon takes a brief break to go glower at Reed Richards at a press conference. Um, and it turns out the press conference is to announce Richards' newest invention, which he's donating to NASA. And that invention also turns out to be a miniaturizer. But it's a smaller and generally better one than Bainan was building, and also it can deminiaturize, which Bainan's could not. Oh, poor guy. So he, of course, loses his shit and starts yelling at Mr. Fantastic from the audience that he's stolen his idea and he'll get him for this. And the cops are like, yeah, buddy, whatever. You may also have an alliterative name like Reed Richards, but uh, he's famous and you're not, and you don't really seem uh, as cool as him. And then, to make matters worse, back at Stark Fujikawa, Bainan's supervisors come in and accuse him of stealing his idea from Richards and then fire him, which, in Bainan's defense, is pretty silly, given that Reed just announced his miniaturizer that day, but they fire Bainan anyway, and he is entirely right to be pissed off about that part. For real. Yeah, I get the impression that he was sort of toiling in obscurity, and he was really hoping that this invention would put him on the map and make people actually know who he was, but, uh, yeah, that doesn't happen. Poor guy. It could be the off-brand, sorry, it could be the off-brand miniaturizer. Yeah, <laughs> the, like, spelled a little different, the miniaturizer or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, now... He is not willing to let things sit, so he breaks back in to steal his miniaturizer back, but in the process of doing so, he stumbles on a whole room full of old weird stuff, and he steals what I assume we're supposed to assume is a suit of Iron Man armor, but is not. No, we'll very much get to that, but first, let's head to stately Xavier Manor, where Beast is asking Cecilia Reyes out to the opera, and Wolverine is asking... Uh, Sam Guthrie along to his and Ben Grimm's poker game for what I can only assume based on later evidence is Bring a Twink Night. That's right, because in parallel, at Pier 4, which is where the Fantastic Four are currently living, Reed Richards and Sue Richards, Mr. Fantastic and the Invisible Woman, 
also are heading out to the opera. They're going to drop their kid off at a friend's house where hopefully he won't rewrite reality or anything. And Ben Grimm, meanwhile, uh, recruits Johnny Storm as his poker twink. Yeah, Johnny's got to cancel a date, but he is no match for the thing's uh, Yancey Street bluster as he refers to Johnny as Sporto. Oh my, yes. And at the opera, um, everyone, including Cecilia, is totally starstruck to see the Richardses there. Um, she is, she is of course, of course star- starstruck because they're super scientists. But this is a good contrast because Cecilia Reyes, you know, she's only known she was a mutant for a short time. She's only been an X-Man for an even shorter time, but she feels like everybody's looking at her, like they all are going to know she's a mutant, that she's a freak. And Beast is like, dude, I think they're staring at me. I'm the big blue furry guy. But I kind of get it. Cecilia feels very vulnerable and on display since these revelations. But the characters that are actually being looked at, Mr. and Mrs. Richards, they're used to this. They're celebrities. This is part of the gig. And everybody loves them. It's never fully made sense that mutants are hated and feared while other super people aren't. But if we just sort of accept that I guess that's how it is in the Marvel Universe, this is a really good illustration of how that would affect people. It is, I agree. Um, and the opera they're at is, is called La Bludgeon, which... As far as I can tell, I, I googled it, and I, I only got results that are discussing this particular annual, so I assume it doesn't exist in real life. I, I Probably not, and what weirds me out about it is that it seems to have a French name, but it's all full of uh, Vikings, like it's the ring cycle. French people can write about Vikings. I guess so. I guess they can write about Vikings. I just would expect the Vikings to, I don't know, be wearing berets or something. I mean, it's not like the Vikings spoke fluent German either. Yeah, that's fair. I I think, Jay, I just want to see someone in a beret with horns on it. May you someday realize that wish, Miles. One can only dream. So during during the opening of, of Love Legend, Bradley Bainan sneaks backstage, and um, it turns out that he has— one of the things he stole from that, that room of dusty relics was Psycho Man's Bad Feelings Box. I don't think it's actually called that, but I can't remember what it's called, and I feel like that's a really accurate name for what it is. It's it's a big, big metal box um, with with three little little sliders on it, um, labeled fear, doubt, and hate. Okay, I work in IT, and I will say that is actually a very clear user interface, and I'm quite impressed. Um, although Bainan still manages to fuck it up, um, he has no idea what he's doing. He doesn't know what it actually does. He doesn't know how to work it, but he figures it'll still be good for some vengeance. Um, I should note here that the last time we saw the Bad Feelings box show up in a comic book, the Invisible Woman took Psycho Man out by turning all three dials up at once, which collapsed his entire nervous system. So fucking around with this thing without knowing what you're doing may be a tad dangerous. For real. It's actually really, really powerful. Like, it's so silly looking. It is seriously just a box with basically three big buttons that, like, you could just sort of punch and it would do the thing. But, um, yeah, it's really messed people up. Like, it really messed Susan Richards up. She ended up becoming this entity called Malice for a while and, like, dressing real skimpy and being evil. Okay, to be fair, there was also an evil shape-shifting robot involved in that transformation. Okay, that's fair. And to clarify, this is not the same malice that, like, uh, possessed half the X-Men at various times? Yeah, this is this is a totally different situation. This is, this is like the Dazzler who was Warren Worthington's uncle. Exactly. Uh, interestingly, though, uh, all of the trauma that Susan went through during all of this stuff, 
uh, becoming Malice. That was actually what led her to stop calling herself the Invisible Girl and to start calling herself the Invisible Woman. So at least that's a silver lining. Anyway, Bainan turns on the Bad Feelings box, and the singers immediately turn on each other and start fighting. And he he still doesn't know if it's working because he's in a closet backstage, so he just keeps pushing random buttons and shit. It starts to impact the audience, including our heroes, but Reed manages to fire off a Fantastic Four flare before shit gets real. Oh, it's just a mess. Like, Mr. Fantastic and the Beast are both racked with self-doubt, and Cecilia Reyes and the Invisible Woman become super angry. I really um, enjoy the way Reed uh, displays that doubt, though. Why have I done this to myself? It's all wrong. I've been too free with my emotions, too warm to those I love. It's just wrong. I've lost my scientific objectivity, the basis of my life slipping away. My God. Oh, Reed. Oh, you, uh, you're a good guy overall, but you could use some therapy, buddy. Reed's issues aside, my favorite part about the scene is that Sue at one point makes an invisible bear trap. Oh, yeah, and she's, like, chomping on Reed's head with it. Okay, so Uh when you mentioned it was an invisible bear trap, like, that makes total sense. Of course, she can create, like, any shape with her invisibility powers. It's basically shaped telekinesis. But I was just trying to think, where the fuck did she get a bear trap? Like, I know this is an opera with Vikings and stuff, so it would make sense if it was an axe or whatever, but a bear trap? Did Vikings use bear traps? Maybe French Vikings. And how did one end up in the, the, you know, the balcony seats? You know, there are so many questions. Uh, anyway, let's check out our other characters. Let's see what they're up to, you know, not getting hit with the bad feelings box and or bear traps. Well, before that, I feel like we should give some background on the floating superhero poker game, because this is what we're getting a glimpse into. Right, the floating superhero poker game. So this is like a thing in the Marvel Universe. This is an in-universe tradition. The first time we saw one of these, one of these games that's between various super characters, was actually back in 1979 in Marvel 2-in-1, number 51. I believe Ben Grimm traditionally hosts it. Generally. Not always, but generally. The last one to show up in a Marvel comic before this was in 1995's Avengers The Crossing No. 1. That time we saw Beast, Hawkeye, Giant Man, the Scarlet Witch, Quicksilver, and Crystal, and the game was interrupted by warriors sent by Kang. And the one after this is actually going to be in Wolverine Annual 1999. That's with Logan, Captain America, She-Hulk, and The Thing. And in that one, Wolverine leaves to go on a beer run and is attacked by ninjas, and by the time he gets back, the game's over. Do we ever see a game finish? Every once in a while, yes, but it's rare. Generally, some kind of super nonsense interrupts it. So back at Pier 4, the poker players are having their own problems. Not the Twinks, though. They're bonding over their mutual disinterest in poker. Everybody assumes that Sam is a ringer, that, like, Logan brought him in because he's secretly really good at poker. Sam insists he's never played before. He's just familiar with, with the basics. Okay, so here's the thing. Cannonball actually has been to one of these in X-Men number 48. The thing had to leave, and Cannonball was dealt in after that. He definitely knows how to play poker, and the thing would at least know who he was. Oh, I fully assumed Cannonball was just leading everyone on. He uh, is very good, it turns out, at poker, and does kick everybody's ass. Although after the first hand, Psycho Man attacks. Um... Or, or possibly a robot psycho man. Anyway, it, it, it is a robot. It's a robot psycho man. And 
we should probably talk a little bit about who Psycho Man is. So his name is Psycho Man. If he has a real name, we don't know it. But he's a very Jack Kirby looking robot dude from the Microverse. He's got a big box labeled, you know, fear, hate, etc. Um, and he he his whole thing is spreading bad feelings. That's what he does. That's his goal. That's his primary purpose. He also wanted to be Captain Universe for a while. But so th- but he wanted that so that he could continue spreading bad feelings. One of my favorite things about Psycho Man is that since he's from the microverse, he's actually super tiny and microscopic, and he's just inhabiting like a giant, normal Earth 616-sized robot body. So there's a really tiny man in there. Maybe that changed at some point, but that was definitely the case for a while. In this particular case, there is not a tiny man in there. What is what is in there is Hadley, the robot friend. Uh, yeah, yeah. Banan had Hadley sort of inhabit the Psycho Man robot armor, and he's uh, punching and ripping and tearing. Anyway, the the poker party takes down not Psycho Man very easily, and then they see Reed's flare, and the twinks fly off, and Logan and Ben discover that the Psychobot has in fact wrecked their vehicles, so they get a cab. Unfortunately, the Psychobot, which is to say Hadley, is not quite destroyed and comes after that cab and smashes everything up. And they take it out with a convenient fastball special, which um, I believe marks the first time that Logan and Ben have done that together. I think so. Anyway, everybody's heading to the opera, which is where the flare was sent up from. And there is no pivotal final battle there, because by the time they arrive, our heroes have already taken out Banan and the bad feelings box, um, which which Reed accurately identifies as the emotion stimulator box, has shorted itself out, or possibly, according to Reed, has been shorted out by an excess of feelings. Is that like where Jane Fonda shorted out the Orgasmatron in Barbarella, Queen of the Galaxy? It is precisely like that. What a film. And Sue is extremely unhappy to have been manipulated by anything related to Psycho Man again. Um, As Miles mentioned, she's got some bad history there. Cecilia, who does not have that history with Psycho Man, concurs and has to be restrained from beating up Bainan, who, meanwhile, escapes, only to return to Stark Fujikawa and be confronted by the real Psycho Man. We don't really find out how Psycho Man got back from the microverse, which is where he was left. He's just sort of here, and he's real mad. But the heroes show up um, in time to save Banan, but while they're fighting, Banan trains his miniaturizer on Reed. I guess unlike Reed's, which specifically only works on, on inanimate objects so that he won't be horning in on Hank Pym's territory, Banan's must work on people. But Ben punches Psycho Man into the miniaturizer, and it explodes— and when the smoke has cleared, neither Banan nor Psycho Man is visible, and so Reed concludes they must be in the microverse rather than, say, vaporized. Well, that's certainly, um, less disturbing. Everyone heads back to Pier 4 for some denouement and poker, and the twinks fall asleep, and that is the end of that. Hooray! Jay, that issue was, was so much fun! It's really delightful. Like, it's it, it feels... You mentioned it feels kind of like the Bronze Age doing the Silver Age. And yeah, it's the Modern Age doing the Bronze Age doing the Silver Age in in really nice ways. Do the 90s still count as the Modern Age? Yeah, we're in the Postmodern Age now. Ah, Pomo. I made that up. That's not not necessarily true. Well, let's go to the post-X-Men Fantastic Four Annual 1998 age to X-Men number 79, Little Morlock Lost. Written by Joe Kelly, penciled by Herman Garcia, sorry I mispronounced your first name, friend, last time. 
inked by John Holdridge, Jamie Mendoza, or possibly Jaime Mendoza, now I'm paranoid, and Marlo Alquiza, and colored by Liquid, and lettered by Richard Starkings, and Comicraft. And this issue is all about Mero, who is fast becoming one of my favorite X characters. Despite being a total shit and a total train wreck. Look, Miles, she's a murder baby, but she's our murder baby. She is our murder baby. And she starts the issue terrorizing a random couple on the streets of New York City who dared to call her a freak. The uh, narration's pretty intense. Blood boils beneath the girl's ragged skin. The pressure of hatred behind her woven eyes. This is what she wanted tonight. Rage. The stink of sweat and fear. In short, an excuse to let much blood. Rogue's like, I want to touch people, and Marrow's like, I want to murder people. Yes. She's being chased on her rampage by Storm and Callisto. Callisto, former leader of the Morlocks, and the closest thing that Marrow has to a mother figure. Callisto is doing a lot better than last we saw her. Yeah, yeah, she was severely injured during Operation Zero Tolerance, and she was convalescing in a bed surrounded by way too many candles with her bare breast covered in fall leaves for some reason for, like, a long time. But, uh, I guess she got better. Maybe the fall leaves worked. Boob leaves are a very common therapy for severe injuries. Mm, It's true, it's true. Storm is just so icy about Marrow as the two of them talk. She just sees her as dangerous. Callisto doesn't really care about Marrow's victims— but she does care about Marrow. Fact is, the surface world deserves anything Marrow throws their way. It was their scorn, their hatred of anything different that drove us Morlocks underground. But this isn't the way. It's not my plan for her. So we're gonna make it right. Callisto's great in this story, and a lot of that is the art. I love the way Garcia draws her. We always hear that Callisto is so ugly, and that's why she's underground— But usually she just looks like a mostly stereotypically attractive, if somewhat butch lady who happens to have an eye patch. And Garcia does indeed draw her as kind of stereotypically weird looking and ugly, and I appreciate that. It's great. He also draws her in Storm Spooning Midair at one point, which I also really appreciate. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Now, if you remember that Callisto got pretty at one point because Mask transformed her for reasons, that's true. Um, But then... After that, she got beaten up by a bunch of Morlocks and got beaten right into looking the way she did before? Listen, it's a comic book. Don't worry about it. Repeat to yourself, it's just a show. I should really just relax. Callisto's take is, look, the X-Men always rescue the pretty and complacent mutants, but they don't put in the effort for the ones who actually need it, the ones who actually are so fucked up, like Marrow. Callisto was right. Pretty much. Storm is furious. She shouts that she had no choice but to try to kill Mero to save innocence. And, as always happens when Storm gets worked up, lightning cracows in the background. Joe Kelly is really good at making it clear just how not okay Storm is with this whole thing. She's so messed up over what she did to Mero, and she keeps telling herself that it was the right and necessary thing, even though it's clear she knows it wasn't. Yeah, Storm is bending over backwards and tying herself in knots to justify what she did to Mero and how she subsequently treated her. And now she's kind of finally having to come to terms with it. She's finally having it really pushed in her face by someone whom she respects and will actually listen to, Callisto. For real. 
Because, uh, yeah, Callisto, after she healed because of her boob leaves, came to the X-Mansion to find Marrow and to remind her that she should stay with the X-Men, she shouldn't go back to Callisto. And Marrow ran away, but not because of this, because of something else that we'll get to. The relevant thing here is that with Callisto not convalescing in her fire hazard of a hospital room in the sewers, Dark Beast, who had been manipulating her, who had been drugging her, who had been pretending to be Colossus while she was feverish, is uh, pretty upset. This will go nowhere. This is a completely dropped plot thread. I believe this is the last we see of it. So um, why did Dark Beast want to manipulate Callisto? Why did he apparently want Marrow on the team, as he mentions? Eh, we don't know. Reasons. Marrow keeps running. She is hurt. She is angry. She leaves. Everybody leaves. Everyone is taken from me. Even... No, not him. Not thinking about him. Not thinking at all. Just punch. Punch at the world and take something back. And the him in question is Cannonball, who is on his way to find her. Because Sam's a really good guy. And she is just so wide-eyed and delighted that he came for her. Like, her entire countenance changes, she thinks. I, I have to say something. And then says... Come closer and I'll dance on your still-beating heart and eat your spleen, cannonball! Smooth, Marrow. Real smooth. This is a gag I never get sick of, though. Like, she's just got such a crush on Cannonball that all she knows how to do is talk about how thoroughly she's going to murder him. Remember that episode of Bob's Burgers where Louise had a crush on a member of a boy band, but she conceptualized it as just wanting to slap him really hard? It is a lot like that, yeah, but, you know, sharper. Much sharper. But Cannonball keeps following even though he's desperate to get home to his sick mom. Remember that? We covered it in episode 427. That takes place a bit after this. His mom has Guillain-Barre syndrome, and one of his siblings wrote him a letter telling him he had to come home right away. And Mero tells Sam, well, he doesn't understand loss. None of them do. And he says that, you know, she doesn't actually have a monopoly on misery, and his dad died in a mine, and now every minute he spends arguing um, with her is a minute he less he has with his potentially dying mom. As is so often the case in the Marvel Universe, however, they are interrupted by cops. Specifically, cops who are terrified of Marrow, but feel obligated to bring her in anyway. Marrow, of course, is about to kill them, despite Cannonball's attempts. But she doesn't, and the narration explains why. She waits for a feeling she knows won't come. It can't. Because she started changing the minute she walked through the doors to the Xavier Institute. As for why she really ran, why she's really lashing out, yeah, it was Cannonball, the one person she thought she could connect with. Now he's leaving. He's going home. She overheard his conversation with his family. And that's her whole thing, is everyone keeps leaving her. She asks the cops if they understand loss, and she finds that, yeah, they do, because these are actually the two cops she ran into in X-Men number 68, Aguinal and Cleveland. They were the ones that were guarding the imprisoned Iceman and Cecilia during Operation Zero Tolerance, and she stalked them and knocked them out and was terrifying, and ever since that trauma, their lives have been falling apart. They got demoted, one lost his marriage, the other's perpetually twitchy. The other cops now call them the bad luck boys, so they kind of do no loss. And Cannonball points out, they're real folks with real problems, just like me and you. Real folks you gotta protect now more than ever with me leaving for a while. Look at the fear in his eyes and ask yourself, 
Do I want to be the monster he's afraid of? Or the human being who saved him from that monster? And as she backs off, she just looks so young and so vulnerable. That's something that the art does really, really well. Going from furious monster marrow to sort of contrite, uncertain marrow. And she has the same face, but just the body language, the facial, the facial expressions, they're so different. They just tell the story so well. Yeah. Yeah. The, what, what Garcia does with body language across this issue is really consistently impressive. Agreed. And Callisto asks Marrow if she's come to peace with this new path that she's on. No, but I'm a Morlock, and Morlocks survive. You taught me that. Oh, man. And Cannonball offers Marrow one last ride back to the X-Mansion on his blasting self, just to show her how fast he can really go when he's not holding back, because, you know, he, he knows her. Just try to shake me, farm boy. Just try. And as she says that, she's just, like, right up against his back with this beatific smile on her face as she has her arms around him. It's so adorable. It's so heartwarming. Like, I know in her early appearances, Marrow killed a lot of innocent people for very bad reasons. But at this point, I, I just love her so much. It's okay. They were fictional people. They were fictional people. So, you know, that's probably fine. Speaking of people leaving, though... As Maggot scolds his slugs for eating Cecilia's medical books back at the mansion, Beast suggests, hey, maybe if you want to learn to control your powers better, you should go to a school. You know, the Xavier School for Gifted Youngsters in Massachusetts, with Generation X. And indeed, he is heading out after this to go join Generation X, admittedly rather briefly, but uh, still, I'm looking forward to seeing that. So the, the team here is, is gradually dwindling. Xavier, Bishop, and Gambit were gone before Siegel and Kelly took over. We had Cyclops and Phoenix leave just after OZT. Psylocke was depowered last issue. Angel is really never even around anymore. Iceman was only here temporarily to help with OZT, and he seems to be gone. Cannonball's off to X-Force. Maggot's off to Gen X, like we mentioned. Beast and Cecilia leave the X-Men between this issue and the next, or maybe the start of the next issue. Do they run off with the opera? I can only assume they run off with the opera, wielding big bear traps and swinging them around. Oh, yeah. So the only remaining members after that are going to be Storm, Wolverine, Rogue, and Marrow. That's it. Four X-Men. I mean, I can only assume that was to make room for the characters who are returning from Excalibur, Nightcrawler, Colossus, and Shadowcat. Gambit will also be back soon. But still, even that is just eight characters between two comics. Admittedly, two tightly intertwined comics, but... But still, and I do want to give a shout out to UncannyXMen.net for uh, listing all of that and listing references. That is a wonderful resource, that site. It really is. I God, I remember reading that for fun for just hours and hours and hours in college. I know, right? I think my favorite part was the costume gallery where you would see all the different costumes a character wore and it would sort of explain like what the deal was with them and why they switched. Oh, unquestionably. Anyway, um, yeah, I'm sure this whole thing was editorially mandated, the restructuring of the team. I know that was a big thing in this era. That's why Siegel and Kelly will leave X-Men and not too very long. But it's, it's, it's sad. Like, I'm happy Marrow's staying. I love Marrow. But Cecilia and Maggot were so fascinating on the team as well. And the dynamics they each had with each other, like every pair of characters had a fascinating dynamic, which is always a good sign of a team book done well. So there we go. The books with X-Men in their name remain excellent in this era. And with that, you've got questions. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, 
I've been reading up on my ex-fandom history lately, and I've noticed that Cyclops' whole period as the next Magneto seems to have been really well-received by fans, with a lot of them even sympathizing with him. But other characters, say Beast recently, for example, haven't been nearly as well-received with their heel turns. Why do you think that is? What makes a character going dark work? I think the parallel you're drawing is a false one. You nail it when you describe Cyclops being set up as the next Magneto. And I think that's what makes the difference, because Magneto isn't a straight-up villain. He's an antagonist a lot, but he's one who's been treated as increasingly sympathetic and increasingly righteous over time. So being set up as, as a Magneto parallel is really more descriptive of Cyclops' relationship to Wolverine during that era than it is of his ethics. Yeah, I, I agree. I think when Cyclops is in his revolutionary phase, like, you know, certainly you could argue he takes it too far sometimes, but what he's doing always makes sense. And I think even more importantly, perhaps, it's consistent with who he is as a character and especially consistent with who he's become as a character. Yeah. And so he still feels like Cyclops, right? And I think with Beast, maybe that's part of why it's harder for people. I think Beast is a fascinating villain right now. I'm really liking the stories, but I agree. It hurts to read. And part of that is that while the heel turn makes sense, he's not the beast we we know anymore. He's so different. I mean, he literally excised the part of his personality that was representative of his bouncing blue beast era when he was on the Avengers. Like, that was the thing he did with science. He is scientifically a very different character than the one we knew and loved. And so, I don't know, for me, maybe that's what makes the difference. That's that's what I like when a character, you know, maybe changes the way they're handling things, but still feels like the character, versus feels like a different character, like a character who's lost something fundamental about themselves. James emailed us to ask, Charles Xavier is regularly referred to as the world's most powerful telepath, but Jean is an Omega-class telepath. Is Charles's title a holdover from when Jean was younger, less practiced, and or dead? Or is it still used because it speaks to Charles's finesse and experience or some combination of his political and social and technological circumstance? Or is it just marketing via nostalgia? Uh, I think it's a mix of all of those, actually. Uh, I think that was very well described. But I think it's important we talk about terminology here, because that's something that has gotten very specific and has changed over time. So Omega-level mutants, uh, as they're known now, they're not necessarily the most powerful in the world. What makes them Omegas is that they all have the potential to be, because if you're Omega-level, that means your powers don't have an upper limit. There's not, like, a stopping point. They could conceivably go on indefinitely gaining power. So I think in this case, it makes sense that Xavier could still be more powerful than Gene, um, in large part because of his experience, the fact that he tends to technologically augment himself in ways that she doesn't as much. But in this framework, Gene would inevitably surpass him, assuming she lives long enough, which, uh, you know, she dies less than people think she dies, but she does die sometimes. Yeah, so does Charles. So does Charles. Very true. Very true. Although think- he does fake his death more. Yeah, so, I mean, who can say, right? Uh, Interesting note, so uh, a lot of us remember House of X number one from not that long ago as being what popularized the idea that Omega means without limits. Actually, that was first mentioned in Fabian Nassiesa's X-Men Forever miniseries way back in 2001. That bonkers, bonkers miniseries came up with this, like, super important concept about how Omega-level mutants work. So, weird, huh? We are an entirely listener-supported podcast, and some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the show from a range of fictional characters and concepts. 
And uh, today we are turning over the microphone somewhat reluctantly to Psycho Man. The scientist Bradley Bainan has paid the ultimate price for presuming to command my bad feelings box. He is now trapped in my very tiny dimension forever. But I, Microman of the Psychoverse, I mean, Psychoman of the Microverse, have returned to control the emotions of my victims once more. My vengeance first falls upon Cadence Wakefield. Too long has she been a macro thorn in my micro side. But let us see how she fares when I turn the dial on my box to silly. Now, tremble as Cadence giggles and dances about. See how she seems to be having a great time, actually. Is this truly vengeance? But no matter. My emotional rampage continues as I descend upon Ivan Lozano like a robot-clad hammer. Ivan has obstructed my plans for too long, but shall be paralyzed by pondering as I turn the dial to... Philosophical! And now... Actually, Ivan, I've never micro-thought of it that way. Do, do we have free will in a world where feelings are controlled by dials? Is even the Psycho Man bound by a Psycho Dial larger than he can imagine? I... I need to sit down and think about this. That shit's macro. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. And please, take a moment to rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platform or platforms. It really helps. Next week, Jay's out of the studio. But Miles and Al Kennedy will be holding down the fort and getting weird with the Generation X Underground Special. Mm-hmm.